0: on this season we'll be covering our vehicles of hysteria how pop culture and the media shape our psychology and society and how our national mythologies manipulate the realities we share and sometimes the realities we don't i'm your host chelsea weber smith and this is American Hysteria.
1: Who killed JonBenet Ramsey? The Zodiac killer sent cryptograms to newspapers and the police. Sharon Tate's mother has dedicated herself to keeping the killers in prison. There was some real deep and intense work that she did, just a, a bigger sense of justice in the universe.
0: John Binet Ramsey has one of the most recognizable faces in American history. Permanently glossy from both her heavy pageant makeup and the fact that we saw her most often on the cover of sheeny tabloids as we waited in line at the grocery store, set forever next to the rows of bright gum and candy bars. On Christmas of 1996, Binet was found missing from her room, and a strange and rambling ransom note was discovered on the stairs, the longest in American crime history. But the little girl, just six years old, was not waiting somewhere to be rescued. She was downstairs in the wine cellar, already bludgeoned and strangled to death. This monumental mystery that came in the middle of the 1990s true crime boom had everything. A rich and possibly twisted, perfect American family, a strong whiff of stranger danger with a man possibly climbing through the window to find her, a ransom note to dissect, conflicting testimony, and eyewitness accounts—both a lack of strong evidence and a plethora of tiny pieces that so many of us believed, and still believe, may one day add up to an answer. And as we hear, again and again, in these highly publicized true crime cases, doesn't America deserve an answer? Our current true crime boom has given us endless docu-series and films, podcasts, and books, some that breathe life back into cold cases, some that expose injustice and exonerate the wrongfully accused, and others that seem to exist for pure and lucrative entertainment. Many sociologists and psychologists, both academic and armchair, theorize at length about the reasons we're drawn to these gruesome stories. A common explanation is that people, especially women who consume the most true crime, are looking to learn how to avoid dangerous situations, the warning signs that can show us the future like a hand of dark tarot cards. Some believe that through examining these American monsters, we can also explore our own shadow selves. Others say it releases our anxieties about the world in a controlled setting the way that horror movies can. And then there are those who claim that it's all schadenfreude, a gross fascination, the visceral and sensitive thrill of seeing people worse off than you. The feelings about the morality of true crime run the gamut, but I'm not here to shame anybody today, because if I did, I would be a hypocrite. I don't think that there's any singular reason that people love true crime. It's a combination of so many factors. But there may be another important underlying need that true crime soothes in us—a hunger for justice that may mean more about us on a biological, psychological, and political level than it does about the tragedies of others that we love to digest. But in our fear of these American monsters— Who else is caught up in the duality of victim and criminal, and how are these stories used in ways we may not even notice? Public fear is a very useful tool, especially when its lens is focused on the most sensational of boogeymen— Uncaught, sadistic geniuses, hippie cults smearing ritual blood on the walls, allegedly handsome men with broken arms calling you sweetly into their car, and silent psychopaths slipping in through your window at night.
1: In the case of the child beauty queen found murdered in her Colorado home, Boulder police detectives have now returned from interviewing about 30 people in Georgia Jean Benet Ramsey has relatives and where she was buried. Jean Benet was polished and precocious. Part of a world involving children paraded before their friends and parents, she was named Little Miss Colorado. Meanwhile, people who didn't even know Jean Benet are stopping by the house to lay tributes. It just really touches your heart. <laughs>
0: Documentaries and shows made for TV movies and tabloid accusations about John Binet Ramsey still crop up in what seems like a constant stream of content, revealing very little that we didn't already know. In 2016, on a large scale, CBS was able to sway public opinion about the case almost violently toward Burke Ramsey, who was nine years old at the time of his sister's murder. With a smattering of criminology stars, their documentary called The Case of John Binet Ramsey premiered to a still hungry audience 20 years after the murder, amassing 10 million viewers outpacing the Emmys of that year. The miniseries presented evidence that Burke had killed his sister in a jealous rage and that his parents had covered it up. They ran through the typical gamut, the ransom note, the jarring 911 call, the pineapple in the belly of a murdered girl. But then they did something that no one else had yet. They took it to the next level. They attempted to construct a replica of John Binet's head, starting with a replica papier mache skull, which was then wrapped in pig meat and grotesquely affixed with a terribly askew blonde wig. Enter a 10 year old boy, the stand in for Burke who was instructed to bash the head of this nauseating version of a six-year-old girl with what the show purported to be the murder weapon, a heavy flashlight. And he did. And like any kid getting to smash anything, he enjoyed it. It was shocking. This shaky accusation was not helped by an interview with the smirking Burke, Clearly a strange and uncomfortable person and a nervous smiler like me. Well, he came across perfectly. CBS could not have asked for a better villain. Burke would go on to sue the network and win, but I haven't really heard anyone talk about the case since who did not immediately express their confidence that it was indeed a nine-year-old boy who did it, someone who would have never faced jail time, who never went on to commit any other crimes. If you follow the case with any passion at all, You might even be mad at me for saying that maybe he's not the killer and that we will almost certainly never know who the killer really was. But I want it so bad. Maybe you do too. True crime has always been a genre that begs involvement. It has a call to action. True crime asks you to be a part of history to help figure it out. In fact, it was the John Binet Ramsey case that began the phenomenon now known as the Internet Sleuth, marking the greatest advancement in community involvement in each and every new crime of the century and those that have gone cold. Usenet emerged at the heart of this movement, a movement before YouTube, before Facebook, before Reddit, when the web was almost completely made up of text and photos. Rarely equipped with training or credentials, these armchair detectives would upload documents and pictures, pore over transcripts, analyze the ransom note's handwriting, and of course post their theories and argue prolifically. By late 1997, USA Today had found that at least 2,000 websites were dedicated to solving the case, a very big number for the early internet era. A leader soon emerged. A North Carolina housewife named Susan Bennett with the alias Jameson would plaster across a popular forum called Web Sleuths, as well as other websites that she would later create herself. In the vast recesses of the internet, this sounds pretty unremarkable, but not so when we follow her journey into newspapers and television, into her role as a de facto expert on the John binet Ramsey case—
1: this day at home mom from North Carolina calls it her addiction. Somebody says, you know, but you're addicted, you're addicted. Well, everybody's got an addiction. And now has fans following in her footsteps. We're online detectives and we're so involved with the case that we like to, to
0: have it solved. She starred on a late 90s episode of 48 Hours where she was presented as a serious authority, actually there to try to discredit the handwriting analysis of experts in the case. All these years later, tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of serious online sleuths are still trying to crowdsource similar crimes, becoming these de facto experts in tragedies that have absolutely nothing to do with them. With the internet we got to add our own voices our own opinions on who done it no matter how uncouth into the snarling internet in the name of justice Before our recent boom, the 1990s were the heyday of true crime and of what are commonly referred to as media circuses as trials by media, like the deeply polarizing trial of O.J. Simpson after a televised police chase, his white Bronco driving at modest speed down L.A.'s I-5 freeway, followed by a handful of cop cars matching its pace. This chase would actually interrupt the 1994 NBA Finals Game 5, taking up most of the screen with a corner dedicated to the game. Three seconds. Violation.
1: This is a Channel 5 News special report. California Highway Patrol is in pursuit of a white Ford Bronco, a car that was reported to be one that might contain O.J. Simpson and a friend earlier today.
0: 95 million people, more than any NBA championship or Super Bowl audience prior, tuned in to watch the coverage, causing that 1994 championship series to receive a record low in viewership. Maybe you remember that. It was nuts and suddenly we all kind of felt like we were a part of it. Court TV had made its premiere a handful of years before, as laws around the use of cameras in the courtroom disappeared. In this way, any person with that channel could watch it all unfold as if you were there, as if you were part of the trial. But watching mysteries being solved and punishments play out live has always been a huge part of our culture, an import from the brutal gallows of England, but with our very own American Puritan flair. The most famous and vocal Puritan there ever was, the man I like to call witch trial bitch, Cotton Mather, was the beacon of morality in the late 17th and early 18th centuries. A minister, author, and all around stuffy dramatic, he orchestrated the devastation that was the Salem witch trials, but he can also be remembered as the first American man who popularized stories of true crime through a written medium. His most famous work was a collection of crime stories modestly called
1: Pillars of Salt, an history of some criminals executed in this land for capital crimes, with some of their dying speeches collected and published for the warning of such as live in destructive courses of ungodliness, whereto is added, for the better improvement of this history, a brief discourse about the dreadful justice of God in punishing of sin with sin.
0: Mather uses several examples of salacious crime, some based in fact and others likely fabricated, in the form of cautionary tales. Women who murthered their children, men caught committing bestiality, servants murdering their masters with an axe, and a handful of other shocking offenses. More of the text, however, is concerned with the criminals' monologues and confessions made during the day of their hanging, their expressed regret, and final attempts at the mercy of God. In the text, Cotton also takes a paternal tone, asking about the slippery slope of their sins that led to this final crime, often drunkenness, skipping church, and cursing. You know the drill. Mather could, in fact, be called the first American criminologist, a man talking about the criminal's past, where he or she went wrong, the root of what made him or her deviant enough to commit such a transgression. Puritans and colonists didn't really care for prisons, preferring capital punishment for serious crimes like murder, rape, or assault, but also minor crimes like blasphemy, trading with indigenous tribes, being a Quaker, practicing witchcraft, of course, and the theft of any goods, specifically, for whatever reason, vineyard grapes and neighbor's flowers, and food needed because of hunger. It says that. From the 1600s all the way up to the 1900s, tens of thousands could show up for the more salacious executions, getting shitfaced together, brawling to get the best view, and stealing pieces of the ropes and scaffolding to hang above their fireplaces, buying up souvenirs like broadsides containing poems allegedly written by the criminal while he was waiting for his death, The last public execution in America would come in Kentucky in 1936, as a black man named Rainy Bethia was convicted of the rape of a 70-year-old white woman, and it was estimated that 20,000 people came to watch, reportedly chewing on hot dogs and drinking sodas and beers handed out by the vendors, heading off after to what one reporter called all-night hanging parties. It would take up until the second half of the 20th century, as the progressive movement came into prominence and these public events would disappear. But at the same time, the most famous men in all of true crime history were starting to seep out from the shadows, almost begging to be caught by people like you. More after this. Factor. Factor will provide you with delicious, never-frozen, ready-to-eat gourmet meals that are chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. Each week, you get to choose from a menu of 35 options to create your perfect breakfast, lunch, or dinner with absolutely no prepping, cooking, or cleaning up. And Factor makes sure you get exactly what you want. You can tailor deliveries to your schedule and customize how many meals you want each and every week, and you can pause anytime. So just head to factormeals.com americanhysteria American Hysteria 50 and use code American Hysteria 50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code American Hysteria 50 at Factormeals.com slash American Hysteria 50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Check out Factor today. And now, back to the show. The late 1960s through the 1980s saw a surge of serial killings unprecedented in the years before or since, with its mysterious peak in 1974, known as the Year of Fear. The year before, law enforcement estimated that there were 89 active serial killers, but by this Year of Fear, there were estimated to be 109. Most of us know that our oft-called heavy hitters, many of which have already graced the haunted halls of American hysteria, have been boiled down to singular sinister traits. John Wayne Gacy, our family man, clown murderer of boys. Ted Bundy, the allegedly handsome man hiding in plain sight. Jeffrey Dahmer, the outcast cannibal. Son of Sam, the delusional Lover's Lane murderer commanded to kill by a satanic dog. The media had long known that scary and exciting stories sold like hotcakes, especially when those hotcakes were presented as salaciously as possible, covered in thick, bloody strawberry syrup, no juicy detail left unreported. But none sold better than the papers that literally inserted you, the reader, into the story unfolding live. A momentous event, a chance to be a part of justice with a capital J. Anyone could be this prerequisite to the internet sleuth, a breakfast nook detective, if you will. So there you are, sitting down with your coffee trying to crack the code of an uncaught murdering mastermind, leaving the Sunday crossword untouched.
1: Search goes on in San Francisco for the man known as the Zodiac Killer. The elements involved today included psychiatrists, astrologists, and police guards for school buses. The Zodiac Killer seems to crave publicity. The psychotic killer has already murdered five.
0: The Zodiac loved attention. He sent out tons of correspondences to law enforcement and the media, dares that came in the form of codes and ciphers that he wanted the public to try to crack. The first cipher he sent out to authorities in the press came in three parts printed in three different Bay Area newspapers. Only a handful of days later, it was actually cracked by a history teacher and his wife, two regular people like you or me. Though cracking the code did not lead to an arrest, it did give confidence to investigators that sharing these ciphers with the general public, involving everyone, might mean that the collective power of a nation of sleuths could be a good thing after all. However, of the four puzzles sent, only one has ever been solved for certain. The final cipher has become an obsession, and just like the John Binet case, it spawned endless amounts of content that attempt to crack the code. The code that many believe will reveal the identity of this uncaught psychotic genius. The evil mastermind archetype that we see in horror movies has been fueled a lot by this elusive figure. But a quick revisit to a couple letters published by the San Francisco Chronicle paint a slightly different portrait. In a late June 1970 example, the zodiac threatens to blow up a school bus if his demands are not met. On the back of a card featuring two prospectors riding on a dragon and a donkey, with the phrase of endearment, quote, "Sorry, your ass is a dragon," this alleged genius wrote:
1: If you don't want me to have this blast, you must do two things. Tell everyone about the bus bomb with all the details. I would like to see some nice Zodiac buttons wandering about town. Everyone else has these buttons, like Black Power, Melvin Eats Blubber, etc. Well, it would cheer me up considerably if I saw a lot of people wearing my button. Thank you.
0: And then, not long after, another letter arrived with a slightly different tone.
1: This is the Zodiac speaking. I have become very upset with the people of San Fran Bay area. They have not complied with my wishes for them to wear some nice Zodiac buttons.
0: No one trait, no one event can link all of these men together. But one truth stands alone. Serial killers are fucking losers. These correspondences were peeks into the minds of society's most reviled. And it was around this time that the study of criminology and criminal psychology began to take up the torch, starting to shirk off those simple categories of an almost biblical good and evil, looking at their childhoods and early behaviors, their head injuries, their motives as they related to major life events, their animal killing mining that great mystery of why. But many in law enforcement felt like all this stuff about criminal minds didn't matter. These guys were just born pure evil, full stop. Then they found an ally in a rising movement calling out for the opposite of investigating the childhoods of the criminal to steer the focus back to the actual victim, the deceased person and their families who seemed forgotten then in the long shadow of those that had made them into victims.
1: In a scene described by one investigator as reminiscent of a weird religious rite, five persons, including actress Sharon Tate, were found dead at the home of Miss Tate and her husband, screen director Roman Polyansky.
0: We all know at least the bones of what would become the Manson family murders. The drugs, the sex, the unapologetic, almost gleeful carnage acted out against movie star Sharon Tate, coffee heiress Abigail Folger, Hollywood hairstylist Jay Sebring, 18-year-old Steven Parent, Leno and Rosemary LaBianca, the owners of an L.A. grocery store chain, and Holocaust survivor Wojtek Furkowski. We've heard the way that these often underage girls left their families, chasing a dream they didn't understand, spending years of their life like this, ending up trapped in bombastic orgies, shaking with drug addiction, and spaced out beyond repair. The cultic mind control, the too radical political and spiritual ideology that led them to all of this, that took them out of reality, we know that on August 8, 1969, the pregnant Sharon Tate was stabbed 16 times in the stomach in her mansion in Beverly Hills. We know the headlines of satanic rituals, Beatles' race wars, dune buggies, abandoned movie sets, the failed albums of their band, and the chilling harmonies that the girls sang as they stood outside the courtroom during Charlie's trial, their blurry belief in this savior, their hauntingly dopey eyes— What many of us don't know, however, what I didn't know, is how the aftermath of this outrageous story and the serial killers of the coming decade that we just talked about who are waiting in the wings helped to change everything about criminal justice in America, as Rachel Monroe writes in her outstanding book, Savage Appetites. These crimes hailed in the 1970s with a rise of a more mainstream feminism, with new laws designed to protect women and give them more rights to safety and personal choice. It goes without saying that this was and is a vital and overdue revolution around sexual assault and domestic violence against women, an approach that included redefining and focusing on those that had suffered the most at the hands of abusers and killers, those who, to this day, are faced with the very court proceedings that are supposed to provide healing, but are often emotionally destructive." But the coming conservative backlash to these rights claimed by women, just like in the satanic panic and with pornography, we'd see political feminism join forces again with the right wing movement of law and order. Before this, the Kennedy administration had passed a handful of laws to ensure rights for defendants facing trial and limit the powers of law enforcement. These laws included the required reading of Miranda rights, the right to a public defender, and the law that evidence be obtained with a search warrant only. JFK was also taking a more progressive approach to criminal justice, attempting to solve issues of poverty that were believed to lead to crime, building new opportunities for low-income inner-city residents to find scarce work and stay in good schools, funding education and vocational programs in prisons, and allowing families to visit inmates. But running parallel were those lobbying for the rights of victims, and giving all of this to offenders felt like an affront.
1: Uh, as far as this problem of law and order is concerned, I am for law and order, Hubert Humphrey is for law and order, George Wallace is for law and order. How we would do it would be quite different. And as far as my program is concerned, I'm the only one of the candidates who has laid out a precise program for stopping the rise in crime and for reestablishing freedom from fear. That's the difference between Nixon and Wallace. So Senator Wallace Trump is against accurate? I am for. That's the difference.
0: Just seven months after Richard Nixon was sworn in as president, the Manson murders would seriously and sensationally reinforce his staunch law and order platform, as would the anti-war, racial justice movements raging all over the nation and his new favorite battle against the drugs that were such a visible part of this inconvenient counterculture. It was Manson family victim Sharon Tate's mother Doris Tate, a charming suburban grandmother, frequently described as baking cookies, who would take up the victim's rights torch with a fiery vengeance. As the movement gained serious steam in the latter half of the 1970s, at the height of the serial killer hysteria, L.A. County Deputy District Attorney Stephen Kay arrived at Doris's hair salon with a petition to deny any of the Manson family members parole at any time. This was because, despite the Manson family's death penalty sentences, shortly after, California's Supreme Court ruled the death penalty unconstitutional and replaced it with life in prison with the possibility of parole. It was then, after years of depression and helplessness, that Doris realized she was ready to do something more, something in the name of victims. Luckily, there was already a movement going strong for exactly what Doris was hoping for, a focus on the victims of crime rather than the criminals. Suddenly, Doris was everywhere, securing positions on the board of Citizens for Truth, Justice for Homicide Victims, the California Justice Committee, and Believe the Children — yes, the one of recovered satanic ritual abuse fame. She was on talk shows and radio shows, rallying for the death penalty to be upheld in California for all members of the Manson family as well as murderers at large. Victimhood was beginning, finally, to also encompass the living left behind, to provide services for the family members of the deceased, to give them a voice. And very soon, Doris Tate would be the very first person in America to give a victim's impact statement during a parole hearing. And it was for Manson family member, Susan Atkins.
1: Sharon was sentenced to death without a fair trial or without a jury. I was sentenced to life in prison without any possibility of parole. And I say to you, should Susan Atkins' sentence be any less?
0: Doris was furious when she found out that Manson family murderer Tex Watson had gotten married and fathered children in prison, and they often came to visit him. Soon after, the state would ban its family visit program and ban prisoners from receiving Pell Grants, seriously preventing access to higher education. California, previously at the forefront of progressive approaches to crime, would soon have some of the highest death penalty sentences in the country. Without foresight, this rising movement was incidentally supporting the war on crime, and conservative administrations broadened the archetype of the criminal until nuances of crime began to fade away, and more and more inner-city black, brown, and to a lesser degree poor white people were incarcerated at unprecedented rates. Tough on crime policies became staples of both Republican and Democratic administrations and policies like mandatory minimum sentencing, two and three strike laws became the new norm in America, as we've talked about many times on our show. The rhetoric around victims and criminals amped up even further through the 1980s with Reagan's task force on victims of crime report. Some of the document reads in second person, inserting you, the reader, right into the unfolding horror, which is more graphic than I decided to include here, and smacks of an episode of Forensic Files.
1: You are a 50-year-old woman living alone. You are asleep one night when suddenly you awaken to find a man standing over you with a knife at your throat. As you start to scream, he beats and cuts you. He rips out the telephone line, threatens you again, and disappears into the night.
0: More after this.
1: Friends, hello. I'm Mike Rugnetta, the host of Never Post, a new and independent news podcast about and for the Internet. In addition to bringing you the latest in current events, we try to figure out why the Internet and the world because of the Internet is the way it is. How did influencers destroy tween fashion? What is posting disease and how do you ensure you don't catch it? From what device must one send important emails? We talk about what's going on online and ask together why. Why are we like this? Find Never Post wherever you get your podcasts.
0: And now back to the show. True crime has always been in my blood. I was one of those secretly serial killer-obsessed tweens that scoured the internet for every detail, John Wayne Gacy's childish prison art, the wild primetime prison interviews with Charles Manson on Geraldo Rivera, Tom Snyder, Barbara Walters, and Charlie Rose, whose time with Manson would go on to win the Emmy for Best Interview. Twenty years after my obsession with serial killers began, on April 24, 2018, after 45 years of avoiding arrest, a former police officer who would come to be known as the Golden State Killer was apprehended in Sacramento County a man responsible for at least 13 murders and at least 50 sexual assaults between 1973 and 1986, right in the heart of the serial killer boom. Much of the time, he crawled through the windows of suburban women and terrorized his victims with unimaginable psychological and physical brutality, just like Reagan described in his task force on victims of crime report. This landmark event, this cracking of such an old cold case, came at a time when I was fulfilling my 13-year-old dream, writing about true crime and interviewing those who worked in the genre for a podcast, including the writer and researcher who helped finish the late Michelle McNamara's beautiful posthumous book, All Be Gone in the Dark, that's now a huge HBO series.
1: Pat Oswald sitting here with the lovely and intelligent Michelle McNamara, my wife and creator of one of the best-written and creepiest crime blogs on the web. I just obsessed over it.
0: What drives me is the need to put a face on a unknown killer.
1: There was some real, um, deep and intense work that she did um, in terms of uh, benefiting, you know, the victims of these crimes, and you know, just a, a bigger sense of justice in the universe. So. I didn't want the book to be left undone.
0: The book was about the man who she named the Golden State Killer, about his victims, about his crimes, about the attempts to find him. But just as much, it was about Michelle, her own obsession, her own confusion over why this case had gotten under her skin so deeply, why she kept looking for justice right up until the very day she died. Just two years before he'd finally be caught. I had written an article for a true crime magazine that was scheduled to come out the day he was arrested, and we actually had to rush an addendum between the pages that made the story into something suddenly and entirely different— unfolding live at that moment. It felt like a collective success for all of us who poured over evidence as amateur internet sleuths, de facto online experts, trying to carry on the work that Michelle left behind. The day the Golden State Killer was caught was one of the most exciting days of my life. I got to feel like I was a part of it it was very exciting. The word justice kept coming up again and again in the news reports and press conferences. And it's true that that day, the world felt more balanced. It felt like there were consequences for these horrific actions. And it didn't just seem like justice for the victims, but it felt like justice for America at large. Researchers interested in the human need for and the experience of justice have long studied and expanded upon what social psychologist Melvin J. Lerner coined the justice motive in 1981. The justice motive purports that a communal structure for justice evolved alongside our hunter-gatherer ancestors. The dominance hierarchy that was in place for thousands of years, with the toughest and meanest at the top, gave way to a system that simply worked better for the survival of the group. Our more recent ancestors lived in communities that shared important resources and came together to reject, in many different ways, those who were too greedy, too self-serving, or just plain dangerous, those who broke the cultural rules that the group set in place to help them thrive to the best of their combined ability. The crimes we've talked about today, our worst cultural transgressions, feel personal to our giant national community. They still feel like our crimes, our hometown murders. And like our hunter-gatherer ancestors, we want to join with the group to try to identify those that seek to harm our collective health. As a part of the justice motive, psychologists and sociologists have also studied how true crime reinforces two cognitive biases— With what is known as mean world syndrome, which is usually explored in relationship to the media, studies have shown that those who consume TV news reports or other media involving crime are more likely to believe that the world is by nature cruel and unforgiving and that they themselves will be victimized, probably soon, by the rising criminal class. Not only that, but it appears that the more of this kind of content a person watches, the more likely they are to support increases in law enforcement presence and power, more willing to support law and order policies. And then on the flip side, there's something called the Just World Hypothesis. It's hard to dispute that most of us are desperate to believe in a kind of karmic justice, that what comes around goes around, that everything happens for a reason, that consequences will be served to the bad people who deserve them, and blessings will come to the good. It's the simple belief that the world itself, that the universe, that God, that whatever you want to call it, is just, and that justice will be served on a cosmic level. One of the most vital studies used in the Just World Hypothesis was conducted by Lerner in 1965, and it involved a group of volunteers watching a woman on closed-circuit television who was allegedly participating in a learning test but was really a graduate student working with Lerner. She was seated in a room fitted with electrodes and asked a handful of questions. With each incorrect answer, the subject would act as if she'd been shocked. Her screams were audible, her body twisting in pain. One group of volunteers was allowed a choice, to transfer her to a different, kinder method of learning without this negative reinforcement, without this suffering. And almost all of them chose to save her, identifying her with words like innocent victim, someone who didn't deserve what was happening to her. Another group of volunteers, however, was not given the option to save the woman from the electric shocks, and they were told that she was being paid for her participation in this learning test. Interviews with the volunteers showed that the less money they were told she was receiving, the more they began to blame her, saying that she either wasn't paying enough attention, wasn't a good learner, or that the pain was justified because she'd become smarter as a result. I know it's a little confusing, but here's what Lerner concluded from the experiment. Quote, The sight of an innocent person suffering without the possibility of reward or compensation motivated people to devalue the attractiveness of the victim in order to bring about a more appropriate fit between her fate and her character. To put it plainly, those who are victimized make us uncomfortable if we're unable to help them. And so it becomes easier to blame the victim, because if the victim receives no money or, more broadly, no justice, it shakes the foundations of our belief in a just world. We realize the world can be horrifically random and that any of us could be next with no real way to expect or prevent it. And since everything happens for a reason, the victim must have somehow brought this upon themselves. In Reagan's task force on victims of crime report, victims were presented with words like innocent and pure and were by and large white women sexually assaulted by a stranger at night or old ladies robbed at gunpoint while shopping downtown. Those who are far less likely to be harmed and far more likely to receive justice than at-risk groups like sex workers and drug users in the unhomed. Those who rarely receive the title of innocent victim. Those who subscribe Most strongly to the just world are also more likely to feel negatively toward oppressed groups and less likely to categorize them as innocent victims, trying instead to find reasons that their treatment is justified, unable to face the discomfort that the world itself may not always be just. Just like those who believe in the mean world, those who believe in the just world are also more likely to support law and order political leaders and social institutions like the police and prisons as they exist now. It's like public hangings, publicized trials, true crime investigations, and even victim blaming are these dark magic rituals aimed at restoring the cosmic order, Away from the cosmic chaos. All the way back to early colonial life, where small sins that held death penalties, stealing from your neighbor, blasphemy, witchcraft, were placed beside murder and rape, as if they were crimes on par with each other. Whatever you feel about the correct punishment for sensational crimes like serial murder, the conditions our cultural monsters deserve to live in after their sentencing, the fact remains that our prison policies, aided by the mirage of rampant true crime events, have affected all inmates, many of whom are there for drug crimes or robberies. Folks who, with the right social programs, with family visits, educational opportunities, financial investment in communities, would all be less likely to become repeat offenders or to even enter prison in the first place. Governor Jerry Brown was a politician who pushed for tough-on-crime legislation in the 1980s alongside the Victims' Rights Movement and Ronald Reagan. But by the 2000s, he realized that it had been a mistake, quote, what we did What I did, we didn't fully grasp the consequences. We just didn't know. And I say it's an error that should be corrected. It's important to remember that true crime has helped solve cases. It has brought closure to families. It has helped to get the wrongly accused out of prison. It's helped to hold law enforcement accountable, to expose huge flaws within the legal system, and it's fueled vital changes in the name of victims' rights. But at the same time, we know so much of it is exploitive and horribly insensitive, like the case of John Binet Ramsey, that had no problem implicating the brother of a murdered girl and turning him into a villain for profit, unleashing the wave of often rabid calls for justice in what sometimes starts to feel like internet hanging parties. And the negative effects of true crime are ever present because it sells and it always has, for better or for worse. As a result, we're inundated with it because we want it. And that cycle has seriously skewed our perception of crime and the potential for our own inevitable victimhood. Rates of violent crime have been dropping steadily since the early 90s. But the majority of Americans, in poll after poll, believe the exact opposite. And according to True Crime, the threat is constant and it's coming to a suburb near you. A quick glance at the investigation-discovery lineup tells us just how frightened we should be, with shows like Evil Lives Here, The Killer Beside Me, Fear Thy Neighbor, and of course, Stranger in My Home. The root word of victim comes from the Latin victima, meaning sacrificial animal. And it seems sometimes that politicians and our culture again and again can sacrifice our archetypal American victims and all of us who are said to be future victims to the gods of law and order. And we can even use past indiscretions, real or imagined, to soothe our own fear that perhaps the universe does not hand us our justice. Instead, many seek to create this justice, to find ways to create a just world for all of us in our messy national community. We are hardwired to do this, and that, at its core, is a beautiful thing. But a lot of things can be wrapped around our fear, around our ideas of justice, because these ideas have always been ordered politically, socially, and culturally— So sometimes our ritual hope becomes nothing but the upholding of an unjust status quo while further cementing our strict and dangerous categories of us and them, of good and evil, of victim and criminal. People like Doris Tate Those actually affected by sensational true crime events have every motivation to march headlong and courageously into their activism so that these horrific events might never happen to anyone else ever again. Then there are people like Michelle McNamara and Susan Jameson Bennett, who became de facto experts in cases that had nothing at all to do with them, and yet somehow lived at the center of their worlds, all different kinds of people, history teachers, solving, psychopathic ciphers, armchair detectives, internet sleuths, bloggers and writers and directors and podcasters and journalists, people like me, and maybe people like you. The murder of JonBenet Ramsey and its subsequent investigation has crystallized into something that feels closer to fiction than fact. It's become a movie of itself. There are characters, costumes, quotes. There are moments we know are coming. We wait for the footage, or we wait for the reenacted moment where Patsy Ramsey says through tears in a televised news report, we know exactly the way she says it.
1: Keep your baby's close to you. There's someone
0: out there. If you even occasionally give in to your sensational side, you'll have seen a dozen Patsy Ramseys say this line. A dozen John Ramseys run into the wine cellar and fall to their knees. A dozen mysterious, sinister men crawl through the window in the night. But none of us have ever met this little girl, this family. And yet, when the question of ethics comes up after a little boy smashes a fake skull covered in pigskin... We have our response. Doesn't America deserve an answer? Maybe the question really is, don't we need one? Standing in the checkout line now, my items pulled toward the register full of cash, I'm still pulled toward those tabloids, beaming her same face back at me again and again, year after year. And maybe you are, too. She will always be ours, John Binet. She will always belong to us. An American legend. A dramatic sequined mystery in full red, white, and blue. This was American Hysteria. Next time on the show, I'll be talking with the brilliant Rachel Monroe, the author of Savage Appetites, Four True Stories of Women, Crime, and Obsession, a huge inspiration for this episode. Don't miss it. And then join us in two weeks, the night before the election, for our long-awaited episode on Fake News. The nonprofit we'd like to highlight for this episode is called the Insight Prison Project, which works to transform the lives of those impacted by incarceration by designing and implementing rehabilitative programs designed to develop emotional and vocational skills and reduce recidivism. Learn more and donate at insightprisonproject.org or click the link in our bio. American Hysteria is written, produced, and hosted by me, Chelsea Weber-Smith. Sound designed by Clear Camo Studios, co-researched and written by Riley Smith, co-produced by Miranda Zickler, with voice acting by Will Rogers. We're so excited to be back for season four, and we wanted to remind you that you can become a patron and support our show. You'll get extra content every month, like interviews, extra episodes, videos, and all the hot gossip before everyone else. We also have some very cool merch available on our website right now. T-shirts, tank tops, and tote bags. So make sure you head to AmericanHysteria.com and check that out. Make sure you also follow us on social media. We're always doing weird, interesting, funny things over there. And you'll learn a little bit about the episodes before they come out. Also, consider leaving us a review. It really helps our show out. Oh my god, I'm just so excited to be back with y'all. Thanks, as always, for listening. And this wouldn't be a show about true crime if we didn't pay homage to podcast patron saints Karen and Georgia of My Favorite Murder. So let me leave you with this. Stay sexy and don't worry too much because you're probably not going to get murdered. Binky, you want a cookie? Bye.